In my opinion, Mountjoy, as it stands, shouldn't stand. It should be torn to pieces, or alternatively, it should be used as uh, a monument, you know, a, a museum, as it is Kilmainham. It has a history attached to it, uh, uh, and that's about the only good Mountjoy would, would actually do. And that's the voice of an ex-convict who for the past 12 years has been a frequent occupant of the cells of Mountjoy Prison. He's just 28 years of age and the father of three children, but already he's seen the inside of Mountjoy on eight separate occasions. He's been remanded in custody or convicted on charges ranging from assault right through to armed robbery. And for the next 40 minutes he describes life in Ireland's oldest and largest prison institution. However, as is so often the case, his career in crime dates back to his mid-teens. At that stage, he was caught in possession of a stolen motorbike, but was sentenced on a charge of driving without insurance. It was to lead to his first contact with prison, and he was committed to St. Patrick's, which is part and parcel of the Mountjoy complex. He picks up his own story from the very beginning. I was 16 years of age. That was 12 years ago. Around 12 years ago. I was sentenced by Justice Kennedy to a, a month's imprisonment. Uh, at that time, was, I, there was ten of us in the house, you know, ten sisters and brothers, me mother and father. That was twelve. We lived in a two-room flat in Mount Pleasant Buildings. And I remember getting taken in the van from the children's court, right up in through the big, massive big gates and into this big, massive institution. You know, and I was looking around, I was... You know, prison, prison, Jesus Christ, you know. I thought it was a little hard shower on the outside or something, but I could really feel my whole soul that we have one or whatever, there, tearing asunder. I felt like bursting out crying, looking around, hoping to see a face that I knew, whatever. Anyway, I was brought down to reception. I was stripped. Uh, all my civvy clothes, as they're known as, was taken from me, and I was given a short, big, long khaki short, something like what the army had wear, but it was nearly down past my knees. I was marched down from the reception in that short up onto one of the wings, I think it was B wing, and I was placed there in the cell. I got a mug of tea and uh, bread and jam, and I was in there for the night. I could look out the window and see most of the lads taking their recreation, and that was walking around the yard. I recognised a few faces which gave me a lift, uh, I never shut my eyes all that night. Every sound, every water passing up and down the prison, you know, woke me up, woke me up. I was terrified, witches and ghosts or whatever you might call it, right? Uh, I remember then the following morning, I was taken from my cell when all the lads was lined up to go to their workshops and various other places. And I was marched in front of them. I was never more embarrassed in all my life for this big short of me. It was like a big maxi dress, you know. Uh, I was brought down to reception and then I was given a uniform which consisted of, memory serves me correct, this woolly type, blue woolly type material. Scratch the legs off, you like herding bone or something like that. And a big pair of leather hobnail shoes. Uh, they were made in the prison at that time, the large, large shoes, you know, big round things, big thick soles, all leather, all handmade. I was given a job then, I was put on to B, I think it was B2. It was in B2 and B3, scrubbing flowers and, you know, you'd scrub them in the morning. You'd go from the one landing to the other, uh, then you go the other side, from one to the other. 
and you back over to the side you've already done and back back you'd scrub the the four landings in the morning you'd come out then in the afternoon and you'd do exactly the same thing on the landings and then you'd do your recreation in the night time but it was a long old month and i got out just in time for my sister's wedding that time uh, the screws used to cut your hair but lucky enough i got on with the the screw that was on the landing uh, he was an all right sort of a fella and he prevented the, the barber from cutting me hair because i explained to him that i had a wedding in three weeks time that when i got out so i got out and <laughs> i was delighted that was the first time i was ever in prison Understandably, however, the experiences of that 16-year-old were highly impressionable, and today, 12 years later, the memories of his spell in St. Patrick's still linger on. Uh, one memory that sticks in my mind, and you could you could understand it coming from right side, I was a child then, and the chap that was in the cell next door was a child. We got a haunted comic. You know, these haunted comics, nobody read books or anything, and their comic was about the degree you could go to, you know. There was books, I'm not saying that. Magazines and comics was what you read anyway. But we got this haunted comic and the chap next door got a, he was a red-headed chap, I can't think his name. Uh, and he cracked up that night. Well, I know a lot of people's not going to know what cracked what up was he, uh, he would have been 16, 17, you know. Uh, got this comic and he cracked up anyway. When he when he read it and he's, he'd been reading about ghosts and Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, various things like that. And he, then he cracked up, which meant he, he started breaking up his furniture and screaming and roaring. Uh, he imagined there was ghosts in the cell with him and all this sort of thing. He'd been dra- dragged off then. I just heard him being taken out of the cell and dragged off. I still to this day don't know, you know, what happened to him or, you know. But now I know, like, you know, you crack up, you go to a base or a lock-up cell or a padded cell or something like that. But that's, you know, as I say, 12 years ago, and I think of that first time I was ever in prison, that's the real memory. Between that, entering the prison, and the way they parade me around in this short, they're the three memories I have, you know, and really missing my family. Having left St. Patrick's, he returned to his family in Mount Pleasant Buildings. He'd already left school, so his formal education was finished, so he explains how his life developed from there. Well, when I came out after serving the month... I had been working previous to getting the month and uh, the job that I had, you know, before I went into prison was still open for me when I came out. Uh, it was a van helper on a laundry van. Uh, I stayed employed with the same firm until I was 18 years of age and then at 18 years of age, uh, it was more or less compulsory that you had to live because you were going on to man's wages and you were only doing boys' work and I was let go then. So what happened after that? Uh, well, I was messing around. I got caught back up with some of my old friends. Uh, started doing a bit of housebreaking and various other sort of petty larceny. You know, eventually got back into trouble and got a, you know, out of trouble, got chances in the court. Uh, got one or two other jobs, worked for a while, worked. Then while uh, I was working, I got charged with a very serious offence. Uh, I was remanded in custody. Which is what, by the way? Uh, it was armed robbery. 
So it was back to prison, this time to Mountjoy, on remand for the charge of armed robbery. He was to spend over nine months in the prison, but was released when the charge was subsequently dropped. However, that was to be just the beginning of his contact with Mountjoy Jail, and in later years he was to see it again and again as a convict or as a remand prisoner. He became accustomed to life in the prison, and he describes what it's like. Well, you wake up in the morning, you usually wake around half seven, you hear them tighten the force lock at seven or half seven, they take the force lock off the door, there's sort of a double lock on the door. You hear a screw going around tighten the force lock off the door, and that normally wakes you up. Then around eight o'clock, the doors is open, and there's a big type of a charge, to get, depending on where your cell is situated on the, the landing, but there's still a charge either way. You run down to, with your chamber pot in your hand, this is the thing that you use for urinating, etc., in during the night, because you're locked up from eight in the night to eight in the morning. Uh, everybody runs down to the end of the landing where there's two toilet pots to service two landings. You know, that would be a landing on either side. Uh, everybody runs for these two toilet pots, hopefully to get in first and empty their pot and that before the toilet basins overflow, because that's a normal occurrence in Mount Joy. The two toilet pots are constantly overflowing. I don't think the sewerage system can cater for the amount of stuff that's thrown down the pots. Then beside that, you have a tap, and a, there's a big, large bin something like what you'd put out for the, the bin man and that's just there like there's no drain underneath the tap or anything like that just this large bin you wash out your pow in, in cold water and pour it into this bucket and that's another reason for the rush up is before the bucket gets overflowing because it has to be carted off and emptied somewhere then you get back to your cell and it's another rush down then to the, the two hand basins when I say two toilets and two hand basins you think there was only two prisoners to each land and there's about 50 but uh, you rush back down to rinse out your few utensils get a sup of water to wash yourself and you back to your cell then you stand at your door you call down the particular landing is called down for breakfast you go down for your breakfast you bring a tray a bowl a cup and a teapot on your tray first thing you get is uh, there's big chunks of tea uh, sugared milked everything you know you just put them, fill up your teapot from the churn. Then you go around and you get bread, uh, four slices. There's really no quarrel about the amount of bread you take. You get a bowl of, bowl of cornflakes and a half pint of milk and marmalade. There's marmalade there. You can take as much of that as you want as well. You go back up to your cell and you're locked in. You eat your breakfast. Then you make up your bed. You have to make it up military style, you know, blanket sheet, blanket sheet, blanket sheet, uh, pillow on top, and so on. You know, you roll up. Then when they open you up, about quarter to ten, I think it is. Then you go down and you wash your utensils, you empty out, get fresh water to rub yourself down again. Uh, then you must put all your utensils out on on the table. It's a locker type of thing. It's both table and locker, you know. Uh, you have your break, or you reset your table then military fashion again. You put your pole upside down, your basin, wash hand basin upside down, and then you're called out for recreation. So that's the end of your early morning at that stage? That's 10 o'clock at that stage, you know, quarter past 10, half 10, the 30s, you know, it depends on what time they choose to let you out at. 
From there, the morning routine continues. The next stage is recreation time, and for that purpose, the prisoners are led into a yard containing two sheds. Basically, what you do, if the weather is any way good, is you'll walk around the shed, you know, clockwise fashion, and you'll stay there till 12 o'clock, or if you want to play cards under one of the sheds, you know, game of dawn or something like that. Can you play football or anything like no, that? No, no, not in this. In, th- in this particular yard, there's, there'd be literally nowhere where you could play football or no, no other games. The only thing you can do is walk around or, as I said, sit down and play cards. So it lasts for how long? For about Until 12 hours? o'clock, quarter of 10 past 12. Then you come in out of the yard, you come back onto uh, B-Wing, you return to your cell, collect your utensils, which would be, again, your tray, uh, bowl, uh, tray and bowl, that's about the gist of it, and a cup for milk. Uh, there's no tea at the now. You go down, you collect your dinner, which is served off a hot plate, uh, hot press type of thing. Then in your bowl, you will get some sort of a, a sweet, uh, you get a cup of milk, and again, bread if you want it. You return to yourself, you'll be locked up then. You'll eat your lunch and you'll be locked up till two o'clock. Come around, they open you up at two. You go out and you get water to wash your utensils. You know, you bring them back to yourself and wash them in your basin, you know. Uh, you have a tea towel if you're lucky. You'll dry your utensils and set them back out in military fashion. You leave your plate outside the door, whatever slop is left on it. That's collected, you know. You're not allowed to have a plate. Uh, and then you line up again, military fashion, and you marched out into the small yard again. Uh, it's the same procedure, walking around the yard from roughly half till to four o'clock. Then you come back in out of the yard, same military fashion. You know, you're not a little smoker while you're marching in. It's just your own parade. Uh, return to your cell again. You collect your teapot, your side plate. And your tray, you come down, you'll uh, get your pot of tea, uh, bread, as much bread as you like, uh, whatever's on the menu for your tea, you know, whatever's on, it's usually the same thing, you know, varies from day to day, but it's the same thing week in, week out. Uh, Jam, if you want jam, there's a fair bit of jam there, and you get a half pint of milk, you're back into yourself, locked in till. That's roughly half hour you'd be locked in dental. I think it's around 20 to 6. The release at 20 to 6, uh, you wash your utensils, you know, set your cell out in the same manner again. You come down onto B1, which is kind of a compound. You know, if you can visualise two landings of cells, you know, about 20, 30 cells each side, that's the length of the compound. Uh, the television set there. Uh, they had a what they call a very small snooker table not snooker uh, yeah snooker table a very small snooker table decks of cards or walk up and down the compound uh, you'd be there till half seven you catch the news and maybe something like Sesame Street or some stupid children's thing like that you're back to your cell half seven collect your tray and your teapot your cup. You come down then at half seven, you get a pot of tea, a bun, something like what you used to get in school, everyone knows the old cutting bun sort of, and a cup of milk, a 
and you back to yourself, the door is locked. You've read that your light is left on until uh, 10 o'clock. You know, 10 o'clock then it's lights out. You're there till you know, 8 o'clock the next morning. But the boredom of the daily routine is only one of the problems experienced by prisoners. They're also locked in for long stretches of time and that generates an inevitable feeling of loneliness. Well, if you take into consideration you're something like it works out basically around 18 hours per day you're behind the door on your own. Well, anybody, I think, can visualise what it's like being you know, 18 hours on your own. Then you have what, 18, if six hours that you can mingle and sort of have a conversation during that time. Uh, what can you talk about in that six hours? Prison, prison, prison. What someone heard on a visit, etc. Uh, what you're going to do when you get out, what you did before you come in, all that sort of thing. You go back into your cell then at night, particularly from, as I say, half seven, eight o'clock-ish, till eight o'clock the next morning. And you're just lying there particularly after 10 when they put the lights out. Like, you haven't done nothing all day to make you tired, so you're not sleeping, you know? It takes you hours to go to sleep. Uh, you're lying there, and it's all you're t- doing is thinking. Thinking of your wife, you're thinking of the kids, you're thinking of the pub, you know, the point. Uh, dancing, sex, uh, just things that everybody does in their ordinary day life, rambling uptown, rambling out where you live and meeting the lads, playing darts, playing football. You know, everything. You know, things that you don't even get involved in or, or that you have never, you know, sports or that you may never have been active in or interested in. You start telling yourself that when you get out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go swimming. Now, there's a the thing, I used to love swimming. No, I, I don't do it now, but I used to love swimming. And in that prison, they should have a swimming pool. They should have a gym. They should have something. Literally nothing, you know, nothing. Right, I take it one of the greatest problems must be missing sex, uh, for example. Would be oh, well, uh, from as, as myself, as a married man, yes, definitely, you know, but everybody, I think, nowadays, you know, I think everybody t- plays their role in sex, both married and single. And uh, you get you get to the stage that you think about it that much that you start imagining you're having it, you start abusing yourself. Uh, I don't think there's any prisoner that could deny that they never indulge in it. I know the doctor up there, I don't know who he is now, but the, the last doctor used to recommend it once a week. He used to tell you, you know, we, we used to call it a calendar. <laughs> so and so, so and so. But uh, it was recommended by the doctor to keep you together. You know, everybody must, you know what I mean? You, you just do, you know. Do you also worry about uh, the fact that you've got a wife outside, uh, what she is doing, will that cross your mind? Uh? Is that part of it? Well, not with me, but uh, I've known plenty of uh, inmates to crack up over it, particularly uh, if they've been told that a wife was messing about, hanging about, uh, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Like, uh, some teams, as we call them, or friends, little cliques, that hang around on the outside, you know, and might do a bit of robbing together or whatever. One of their friends might be constantly going down and dropping a fiver or a tenner or something to his mate's ma or something. Just something to help her out. And rumour had leaked back into the prison that he was having an affair with her. Stuff like that. It's it's terrible. I've really seen men break over, you know. I've seen men with a great friend of mine now at the minute on the outside and he's having terrible domestic problems over the same thing. 
and still to this day nobody could know whether they're true or false but it said in and he had 16 hours a day to play around with so I mean as far as he's concerned it's the truth he's convinced himself during that period However, the worry about a wife or a family isn't the end of the story. Other simple, everyday things are missed by prisoners as well. You're lying in your cell. This is where it all really comes to you, when you're isolated. You're lying in your cell and you allow your mind to ramble outside the prison walls and that, you know. And you, you might be thinking like a pack of crips, uh, just a rambling. Remember the day I was rambling up Grattan Street with Johnny and Mick and we rambled into Cainburger or McDonald's or one of them places and we got a burger and chips. You know, you, you really miss them things. I mean, they mightn't sound like you could miss them, but you really miss them. You talk about the point, uh, game of snooker, you really miss that. Packet of crips, lemonade. Now these things like crips and lemonade and, you know, fizzy lemonade, large bottles of orange, cans of orange, whatever. There's nothing that's prevent them from selling them in the prison. You know, putting up a shop there, they have it in Port Leash, right? And they sell everything. You can buy anything from, Jesus, we say a flea to a, an elephant, you know, that sort of way. You can, if you've seen the, the list they have in the shop there, clothes, tape recorders, anything you want. Into Mount Joy, you have a few sweets, cigarettes, shampoo, soap, and that's about the gist of it, right? Well, they should have lemonade, cakes, biscuits, you know, sweets, chocolate, uh, potato, Peanuts. You know, they, they should have even a suggestion box there from the prisoners as to what they should stock in the shop. What people miss, but they, they won't do it. Despite these problems, however, there's one apparent relief from the monotony of life in the prison, and that's the visits from family or friends. On the surface, they appear to be a vital link to the world outside, but what's the view of the prisoner? Visits, in my mind, would be one of the most depressing aspects of prison life. Myself now, I'm a married man of three young kids. The last time I've been in prison, uh, the wife came up to me and she the kids were up. Now you sit across a very long table, maybe four, five feet in width. In the centre of that, there's a small plastic perspex partition going up maybe two feet. Uh, you sit on your seat and you must keep your, your bottom on the seat at all times, you know, they would raise the bend over to perk a kiss or whatever. But the actual uh, sit there with a prisoner maybe each side of you and a family each side, you know, it's a very long table. Uh, everybody's getting their visits together. There's a prison officer at each end monitoring everything. Everybody is saying sort of. Uh, he's there to make sure that you don't kiss your wife, you don't hold your kiddies, whatever. If you're a sentenced prisoner, you have a half an hour a week of a visit, that's all. If you're a remand prisoner, you're allowed 15 minutes per day. Uh, in, in either case, you know what I mean, you're not allowed to speak about uh, prison conditions. You're not allowed to mention prison on your visit or your visit will be stopped. Now, if you take somebody for argument's sake that's doing after five, four or five months in prison, what else can they talk about? So the, the only thing your your actual prison visit boils into is your relatives or your family coming up to give you a scandal. That's basically all you can get. What's going on on the outside? Uh, you can, of course, uh, write to people outside, can't you? Uh, isn't that... Uh, well, writing, allowed? as I say, you're allowed to write. No, as I have here, for example, I'll show, show you here. 
is letters I receive and send to prison. And there they are on the back of every sheet is uh, censor forms where every there's the official stamp, as you can see there yourself. Nice. Every letter is censored, dated and stamped. So therefore you could never write to anybody on the pretense that you weren't in prison. You could never write to anybody, say your girlfriend or your wife, and etc., and put sentimental things in that the screws could re-slag you off. And that does exist. Like, they read your letters, and they know your weak points, and when they want to get up on your back, they're going on about the dear John, so-and-so, so-and-so. But come Christmas, like, there's another perfect example. The card I got myself from a very close friend of mine. That's censored as well. Censored and stamped. Now, I mean, mm. we all send... X amount of cards at Christmas, whether you're in or outside, right? And you send them to people you haven't seen for years, you know, that that may be the only communication you have year in, year out is a Christmas card. If you want to send a Christmas card to that type of a friend, uh, just by opening the card or looking at the card, they know that you're in prison. And these might be relations or, you know, if your mother was abroad and you didn't want her to know or anything like that, she's going to know the minute you open the card. And then if you don't send her a card, she's worried. So, I mean, it's, in my mind, that's trivial nonsense. You know what I mean? What's on a Christmas card? Dear Sansa, with best wishes for Christmas and the New Year, best wishes, Sansa, Sansa. I mean, why do they have to censor that? Even if they are censoring it, why do they have to stamp it? Now, there are other aspects of life in Mountjoy that cause frustration for prisoners as well, and one of them relates to the work done by inmates. Among the jobs available are the making of upholstery, mat-making or baking. So the question is, how does a prisoner react to that sort of work? The boredness is still there. Like they put you into a workshop, uh, say a mat shop, filthy old mat shop. You know these real old brown government mats? You'll see them everywhere in every government building you go to. You make them one of them. You know, you wouldn't, the size of some of them, you wouldn't make them in month of Sundays, you know, they're that big, you know, the prisoner come and go, you know, and they take over. Boredom, there's nobody rushing you, you've no interest in the job because you can never see it being completed. Uh, s- dust, dirty old dust flying around, or you could be rolling up the twine, they use a, it's a type of brown twine they use for plaiting them, sort of, and cutting them, big scissors. Uh, you do that, say, from the, you know, 10 to 12, 2 to 4. Uh, you could be out in the woodyard. The woodyard is chopping logs, pulling saws. You know, you'd be out there in all elements, you know, uh, hail, rain or snow, sun, whatever. You get no extra clothing and you're not allowed to remove any clothing, you know. So the, the same goes winter and summer. You can, even in the height of the sun, you must keep your jacket on. You must keep pulling the saw. So do you feel that the work actually does nothing for you in Montjoy? There's nothing. I mean, where are you going to get a job making mats when you come out? Where but there are other jobs, surely, aren't there, I mean, in terms of woodwork or... Uh, well, they have, of late, they have D-Wing. D-Wing was always there, but of lately they have modernised D-Wing. And they have, like, uh, making sofas, you know, upholstery, carpentry shops, uh, a leather shop. Uh, stuff like that but in terms of the number of prisoners that would actually be employed in them shops would be something like 5 to 8% of the total prison population so your chances of getting a job in one of them places are virtually nil you know, 
and uh, then the same thing actually boils down. I mean, the trade unions are nothing like that actually recognise uh, the training that you have received in prison, and you're still the same. You know, the employers won't employ. But quite apart from work, there's still the question of how prisoners get on with each other. After all, they're forced to live together for months, maybe years at a stretch. So we could ask what sort of relationships exist between the different categories of inmates. Well, they vary, you know. If you're dealing with sex offenders, as we call them, right, uh, you know, they're usually sent to the base and they'll do a time in segregation security down there. They'll be kept isolated and and after a good period of their sentence, they will be shifted to another prison. Now, uh, that other prison, I, I really don't want to mention it because those other people get sentenced to that prison and get transferred to that prison who are not sex offenders. But I feel if I mention the name of the prison and tie it in with sex offenders, there'll be a stigma attached to anybody that done a stinch or done a stell in, this in that particular prison. You're probably talking about Arbor Hill, are you? Uh, well, I, well the client, like, you know, right. as to what prison I'm talking about, but what I'm trying to say is, although a high percentage of the prisoners that are sent to this particular prison may be sex offenders, there are uh, ordinary Joe Soaps who, have, who are very nice people. In my mind, they mightn't be in the mind of the public because they committed a crime, but they paid their debt to this society, and they are now branded. When people hear that they were in this particular prison, they become branded as sex offenders, and the people had nothing to do with it, which is the, the fault of the department. You know what I mean? But how do other prisoners uh, treat them and enjoy when they're when they're there? They would attack them. Basically, they would attack them if if they got to grips with them. I mean, it's very hard uh, for any man that has sisters, mother, or children. You know, to. Uh, stand in line with, with a sex offender, you know, depending on the category of his crime, but it's common knowledge, I'd say, all around that sex offenders will be attacked, you know. But is it the case that uh, other prisoners could be a source of pride, for example, if you're talking about um, armed robbers or something like that? Well, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. They, they could be the, the cream of the prison in, in terms, you know. They, uh, it's just that stigma again, you know what I mean? I suppose it boils down in a, in a lot of places, you know, it depends on where you are. I uh, can't really explain, I can't find a word for it. Uh, what source of pride associated with that sort of robbery, you know? You might find that they have a terrible lot of respect from the the environment that they're in whilst in prison, you know? There's a terrible lot of people that would like to have decided guts to commit an armed robbery but don't, right? And the, mm. we're, we're in the criminal sort of environment and I suppose they'd have a certain amount of respect, more respect for, for, them, yeah. for them. What about drugs? Well nobody really looks upon drugs as a crime. When you go into Mount Joy and you, you see drug abusers, junkies, even those that have been convicted for peddling drugs, you basically know them and you know that at the back of it all they're not really drug pushers, that they got hooped on mainline heroin and that was the only way because I mean they could have been good say even robbers before they got caught up on drugs and when they got caught up on drugs their whole what we call the bottle you know their guts goes you know and then they might resort to pushing gear for uh, the feed of habit you know uh, you'd feel sorry 
in a lot of ways. If you see someone coming into prison and going through a stench of cold turkey and that, you feel really sorry for them. No, I'd say at the minute, the junkies in our prison system would be the weakest spirited uh, inmates in the whole, you know, prison population. They're wrecked, run down, wrecked people. And no use. Uh, They're no use to, you know, nobody. To, mm. you, you just really pity them, you know. You can't help but pity them. They what shouldn't be what there. What they about, for example, country versus city? Uh, is that um, sort of a big difference in terms of the way that you're treated uh, in Montjoy? Not really, no. Uh, in the Boston, say, you know, if you go back, you know, to the younger days in the Boston, there was always a stigma of country versus city and sort of little gang rivalry because that's the way juveniles are. But in the adult prison, Mountjoy and that, uh, doesn't exist really, you know. You might have, uh, like most prison officers are from the country, uh, most r rural parts of the country, and if you have an odd inmate that comes in from the same town and that, well, he might be favourable to, you know, throw him an extra smoke or, you know, try and get him a cushy number, that sort of thing. That would be the only variation. That. Do you think that overall uh, prisoners get on fairly, fairly well together uh, in prison? I'd say so, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, judging from sort of mixing in a, a criminal circle on the outside, I'd say there's a lot more rows amongst criminals on the outside than you would see in prison, you know? Now, one special type of inmate was mentioned there, namely drug addicts. And the fact is that drug offenders are appearing more and more in our prisons. So what do they face if they're sentenced to Mount Joy? Well, a, d a drug addict coming from the courts, uh, it varies. Like, you know, some drug addicts would have been the night in custody in the bridewell. Right? Uh, these could be people that's banging up something to the tune of £100 a day. They're not alone in the bridewell. They're, uh, well, we call it for argument's sake, their medication has wore off them. They're going through a phrase of cold turkey. Uh, they're really sick people. Before they even appear before the judge, they don't know how to conduct their case, whatever. Then they're shifted off to Mountjoy, or that's where the judge sends them. They spend the remainder of the day until half hour that evening in the bridewell. Then they're shifted up to Mountjoy. By the time they get to Mountjoy, the doctor is gone, so they can't get any medication. So they're in the cell right through till the next morning. Go and see the doctor the next morning, maybe 12 o'clock. He orders medication for them, and they'll get it that evening. So that's three days, say two and a half, three days without medication. And any doctor or junkie will tell you what that actually means, that's the where they're really broke, they can't eat food, they're tearing the hair out of themselves, biting their nails, banging their head off the wall, tearing their mattress, you name it, they'll do it, they're really the most unfortunate victims. Right? Yet you have uh, a doctor in there to look after those people, do you not? You have a doctor that arrives daily, you know, the morning time, uh, he will listen to them, uh, will hear their request for Fiseptone or some other thing, it's a substitute for heroin. He will give them so many mils of it, uh, that's milligrams, you know, you know, I hear them talking about it. They will get it that evening. But then again, he's a GP, you know. Uh, I think myself they should have someone from Jervis Street maybe, the drug centre, or the, you know, of the Republic, should be there 
you know, because we have now, we have a vast majority of drug abusers coming through the prison system daily. And I think it's high time the department booked up and got a professional from Jervis Street, you know, or kill mines there to deal with the problem that's coming in. But such rather critical comments aren't reserved only for the medical staff. Of greater interest are the warders who have daily contact with prisoners and virtually govern their lives. So how does he view the warders? I would say I hate them. I despise them. I've met maybe one, two, three, maybe nice ones. That's about my limit. And then you must take into consideration there are actually more prison warders in Ireland than there is prisoners. And uh, I have never found that they do you favours. They will never, if, if you're the sort of person that has a bit of pride about yourself and wouldn't bum off them or wouldn't lick up to them, yes sir, no sir, basis, they would do literally nothing for you. But if you're the sort of a, a prisoner that would say, yeah, Mr. Sounds, I'll throw your shoes in there and I'll polish them where there's nobody looking and all that sort of thing, well then they'll go out with their wife here. So I suppose it, it depends, it's your own attitude uh, towards prison and towards prison officers as to how you get on, you know? What do you mean by that? I mean, if you're nice to them, that uh, you If you want to be a lick, you know, you can get on. Or if you want to just, the way I say it, I'd like to just do me time and, you know, I don't like bumming off anybody, particularly them, you know? Mm. Uh, it's hard to explain to someone that hasn't seen it, but uh, they don't leave you alone. They don't like the idea that you don't uh, go near them for nothing or that you're not bound down to them. And... They try to get at you, and if you deal with the prison rules and regulations, they can get you for anything. Like, how many times have you walked along the street, unknown to yourself, you're whistling? Mm-hmm. You do that in Mountjoy and you'd be put on report, speaking too loud, uh, disobeying an order. Now, an order can be anything, you know. Uh, anybody that was in the army uh, would know, you know. Orders, order you to do this, I order you to do that. Now, myself, if I, if I go into prison, uh, when I go into myself after you know the various lock up periods, I won't lock me door. You know, they'll roar at you, lock that door, right? As far as I'm concerned, they're the screws, they're getting paid for locking me up. No, I won't lock the door. If they want it, they can put you on report for that. I know if I have done. But the warder's power is wider than that. They also conduct searches of cells, for example, and the prisoners complain about the procedures adopted when a search is being carried out. You might have spent a couple of days with little matchsticks now. Anybody, look at the size of a matchstick. You get a photograph and you make a frame from matchsticks and you varnish and you do it nicely. They come along and they're searching your cell and for security reasons they tear the matches asunder to save the ant and hid behind it. I mean, there's... There's a lot of trivial nonsense, like, on the way they scrutinise the visits and your mail, etc., it's virtually impossible to smuggle out into prison. And yet they come around, and when they come around to search it in yourself, they don't only search yourself, you have to strip naked. You know, strip, you know, completely naked, right? And turn around and lift up the soles of your feet and pull your hair back and let them look in your ears, you know? It's, it's, it's the most degrading aspect of, of life is for, for males to be searching other males, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what people say or think, we're in prison, there's a terrible lot of sort of 
homosexual relationships and prison officers are accused of it the same as inmates are. And if you have a prison officer who's branded, whether he is or he isn't, if he's branded by the inmates, this is queer, and he's coming in and searching, I mean, it's... You think about it. Yeah, you know, and you don't know whether he's stripping you for uh, his own personal pleasure or whether he's doing a job or whether he's getting his kicks out of doing the job. Now, I'm not, the man mightn't be homosexual, he mightn't be gay, but rumours, everybody knows someone that they might suspect of being gay, and they're probably not, but in prison, rumours and rumours and rumours. But there's probably more than rumours. Does it happen? I mean, oh, it does happen. I mean, I, I mean, there's no disputing that it happens, you know, but uh, it gets over-exaggerated. Like, I mean, everything in prison is over-exaggerated. Uh, because you put a group of men, women or anybody together and they're bored like that. I mean, they make gossip. Whether it be true or false, they make it, you know, something to talk about, something new. Everybody needs it, you know, needs something to talk about. Something to talk about, a product of the boredom of prison. And for inmates of Mountjoy, there's just one target in mind, namely the date of release. It's a thought that keeps most prisoners going and it can become an obsession for those behind bars. Some cells I've been in now, and you see whole calendars, ancient type of calendars, you know, where you scrape one, 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 one into seven days on the wall, and you see someone has been scraping off the whole time. I, I personally haven't indulged in it. I would uh, more or less count it up in my head. You know, everybody does. Uh, a lot of times when you're walking into your cell, although you know what date is actually on your card for your release, you still look at it, you know, and you're hoping that you... <laughs> It's either changing or you looked at it wrong or something. You basically know the day you're getting out. But you, I think everybody hopes for an earlier release, parole, something like that, yeah. And as I said, uh, there is quite a number of people that actually chalk it off on the wall or on the back of a book. You know, you, you find all these sort of, uh, what do you call them, Roman calendars. <laughs> you find them all over the prison. What about escaping? Do you ever feel like... Um I think everybody does. Everybody does, you know, particularly anyone doing a large sense. You, you could think about it and you could even, in your own mind, discover a way out, but basically nobody bothers trying it. I mean, what escapes have we had from Irish prisons? We had an attempt recently, one got out and one failed. You know, I'd say myself, not even known the chap, but say sorry now that he, you know, he had it away. You know, you have a date there that's, you know, you look forward and you know through attempting to escape. Although everybody thinks about it, you'll only ruin yourself. Like, you know. Finally, however, comes that long-awaited day of release. It never comes soon enough, but when it happens, how does a prisoner feel? It's marvellous. You couldn't explain the feeling, you know. And I know it means nothing, and it's a trivial thing. It means nothing how the air inside the wall could be different, you know. But still, when you get out, I don't know whether it's from looking at films or whatever, you still tend to take a deep breath and say, this is free air and there's something different with the air inside. It's the same air, but, you know, it's just something that sticks in your head. It would, of course, be nice to say that being released is the end of the story. Unfortunately, however, for most prisoners, the problems are only beginning. For our interviewee, the reality has brought unemployment and almost no hope of a job. He's got no skills, little education, no training, and the future looks bleak. With that as a background, there's just one final question, namely, does it all mean that he'll end up back again in Mount Joy? I would say 
to be honest about it, I would say, yes, I, I will see Mount Joy again. Uh, I have a trial coming up at the minute. It's an assault charge. Whether I go back or not on that is another day's work, but definitely I think I would see Mount Joy again. One way or the other, you know. Hopefully not, but I mean, you, you've got to be truthful. If you play with four, you expect to get burned.